0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the broadcast. I'm your host, Greg Bendian, where we're having weekly chats with fascinating musical individuals from around the globe, covering all aspects, all manner of outside music, contemporary music, progressive music, whatever you want to call it. I don't really have a specific term for it, but we're looking forward while we look back. And uh, I'm so pleased this week to have a very special musician. I, I met her a year ago when she was performing with my pal Tom Chu and the Flux Quartet, performing the Morton Feldman Piano and String Quartet piece from the 80s. And I was a big fan of that piece. I had never heard it perform live. It's mm-hmm. not something that gets performed a lot. So I knew it was a special treat, and uh, it was a free concert that was being held uh, on on the grounds of Princeton. It was a rainy January night, and uh, we were lucky enough. My wife, Sylvia, and I got a chance to go in uh, and get a seat toward the back. The opening piece was the Flux Quartet playing Stravinsky's String Quartet from the 30s, which occupied very similar sound worlds to, to the Feldman from 50 years later, I have to say. It was very interesting. But uh, but this is a long way to say that I got to see Vicky Ray, pianist, performing with this Flux Quartet, and I got to hear that sound that I've listened to on CDs, and I knew it was going to be glorious and crystalline and beautiful, and it sure was for upwards of 80 minutes and uh, a packed house. And uh, it was a quite an experience because I was also very curious to see how the audience would hang in on something like that. But we'll talk more about that. Uh, but that is to say Vicki Ray is here. She's a pianist, she's a composer, she's an educator. She's a champion of contemporary music and I'm very pleased to have her on the broadcast. Hi, Vicki
1: Ray. Hey, Greg, thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. <laughs> and and uh, that night at Princeton was um, it was a really special night. I'm glad I'm glad you were there. Oh but yeah. When you get to this age and you look back and you know certain nights really stand out in your memory and that was one of them. Definitely. It
0: was you know not the ideal uh, audience for that piece. Uh, uh, it was. Um, you know, the reality of the, the I'm always interested Vicki in the reality of these things, you know, like, yeah. So let's say that that audience was the community from around Princeton, not the academic community and a lot of uh, uh, senior citizens and, uh, and some students but it's interesting to see how people respond to something like Feldman because you know, it's not Varez. It's, you know, it's not Xenakis. It's, it's something that, that I feel, best case scenario, you might recognize some repetition in it and that might give you something to hold on to. Now, the sheer statistical amount of repetition in, in such an endeavor is slightly different because now you're testing whether people are gonna hang for the 15th variation of something or, you know, the, are they noticing things returning? And uh, so uh, that, that's a long way of saying there was a bit of an egress, pretty constant. Um, you know, there were there were cell phones going at it, and I was kind of disappointed in that. And I thought, well, you know, a lot of different things, but that didn't stop you guys at all from from giving us an incredible performance. What's it like
1: sitting inside of that music for eighty minutes? Yeah, uh, it's it's incredible. I mean, it's really time really stops you don't have a sense of passing time at all um but it's also your brain the the way feldman constructs the music is so ingenious because every single measure is a different time signature so you cannot space out for a nanosecond so even though on the outside it seems very floaty and slow it does seem very floaty Inside you're going one, two, three, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, five, you know, it's just, it's this incredible, uh, you know, balance and dichotomy of energies going on that keeps you so wrapped the whole time as a performer, but, but in terms of the audience, you, you sense them when they're with you and you can sense when they sort of, when you sort of lose them too. Oh, you do, you do. And for me, it's always when I feel them starting to drift. If for me, it's like a, it's like a, a, um, a sign that I need to double down on my intensity. You know, so I just try to pour a, even more intensity into the focus of my sound, and the, like you said, like there's all these repetitions, but they're never quite the same. They're like, yeah. different. Mm-hmm. So trying to. Uh, even if the audience doesn't perceive it on an intellectual level, I think on some kind of subconscious level, they feel it. So I try to just really play with that. And and so I'm trying to nudge the audience on different levels when I feel them starting to drift. And so it's just this amazing um, give and take. Um, I don't remember cell phones that night. We did it two nights at Princeton and um, and even though you know it might have been a, a lay audience, it was at you know the Center for um, Advanced Studies, and I think when people go to that, they know they're going to be challenged, you know. Um, and then on top of it, David Lang was the curator, and David gave the great talk at the beginning. I thought, yeah, yeah, right about yeah. just finding a way into this music. Mm. Um, so so yeah, it, all of those things, you know. You know, but, and it should be said that that uh, you know, I know
0: David from from Yale, and and we've been at a number of of those events together. And then I saw him that night, and we chatted about how the Feldman is really, uh, you know, prefaced in the thirties by Stravinsky, even though it's like a four-minute Stravinsky, right? It's it's a, quite a short piece.
1: Yeah, I think David wanted to juxtapose that tiny intensity of the Stravinsky with this, with the huge, you know, so. I also have heard, um, like, Asa once juxtaposed Webern, Five Pieces for Orchestra, which only lasts, what, four minutes, Mm -hmm. with one of the huge Mahlers, I can't remember, Mahler 9. And uh, he said this super cool thing like that with Webern, it's like all of romanticism is just compressed down, like taking a piece of coal and compressing it into a diamond that each note is like hyper expressive and I sort of felt that with the Stravinsky like it was this compression of ideas that then you know gets expanded in the in the Feldman.
0: Oh that's interesting
1: yeah you know
0: you mentioned Webern though and uh, as someone that I know has looked at the whole run of progressivism in classical music, right? I mean, you're there, you've played the Debussy stuff, I'm sure you've played the Weyburn stuff. Webern's an interesting guy, right? Because what does he do? There, He's in a bombastic musical culture. He's post-Wagner, for fuck's sake, you know what I mean? So it's like, how do you deal with being that? I mean, those guys, so I view him as a much greater iconoclast than maybe even some people do. Because yep. look at what he's doing, you just said it. That note, it's the most important one note in the world. The next note, it's a super important note. <laughs> but yeah.
1: there's only going to be so many notes. And, and he was so, the thing I love about Webern is just how lean he is, you know? <laughs> I, mean, I love Berg too, but it's gorgeous and voluptuous where Webern is just so pared down and, and yet it's and, and so elegant. and. You know, it's a less is more aesthetic, that's for sure. And for him to do that, you know, just as romanticism is peaking and spilling over, it's really radical. Um, I love him for that.
0: And I credit uh, very highly Jeffrey Kresge, who was my composition teacher in my senior year, junior and senior year of high school. And uh, he was a, st- a student of Charles Warren. And so I was getting Webern through a guy who was a young guy and was was saying to me, uh, you know, this is what's going on this music, and I could, I could get it. And so I think I don't know if I was into Varese first, or if I, if I knew, you know, what I knew, I knew, I knew the Prokofiev chamber stuff, which I think is some of the most out music in in the world. And, uh, and I think that when I, when I heard the five pieces, and when I heard, uh the string trio do you know the Weber and string trio yes incredible uh, yeah so those pieces and then i think i also this is one other thing i wanted to, to mention as a composer who's looking at guys that are writing a shit ton of notes webern where the notes counted and you could actually deal with it just even in terms of scope and to to, to get that kind of value out of one no. also i remember cecil taylor saying to me that the trick is to make one note sing
1: oh that's wonderful
0: and i thought that that you know in my in my young brain at that time kind of connected those two things um do you ever think of of feldman as being a heavily post webern guy
1: um I hadn't until you said it, but I can certainly see a connection, especially in later Feldman. You know, when the materials got more- later more, Feldman, yeah, more home. like his earlier stuff, like some of his graphic scores and um, the nature pieces and stuff. They're much more busy, um, but certainly the the later works for sure. Do you know if if Feldman was a fan of Webern? I don't. I don't know actually. I,
0: I'll tell you what. It hasn't come up, and I I've been a fan and checking out Feldman's you know, writings, etc. cetera. I, I could have missed it,
1: but it seemed to me like he was a prolongation of Webern. I like that idea. You know, um, just going back to the David Lang thing with the Feldman, David, David teaches this really, I don't know if he still does, but he teaches this really amazing course at Yale about, about virtuosity. But he, of course, because he's David, he has this completely revolutionary way of looking at virtuosity and he really influenced how I think about playing Feldman because he he talks about sure there's a virtuosity we all know about technical you know fireworks but he said there's other kinds of virtuosity too and one of them is the virtuosity of duration and and that really, opened my mind about playing Feldman like this music takes us really a certain kind of mental virtuosity and as a listener you know focus virtuosity but he so that's why I asked him to um write the program notes for my cd for the piano and um string quartet piano string quintet string quartet sorry yeah yeah
0: yeah it's it's a really interesting thing that I have to say for me is funny because I think we're around the same age, but I came up with progressive rock concept albums, and so those were all headphones in the dark with your black light posters, listening wow. to you know all four sides of the lamb lies down on Broadway by Genesis. So I'm up for an 80-minute hang in music, you know. I was sort of predisposed to that. And so we always also did long listening sessions with my son when he was quite young. And he went with me knowing already in advance, the music for 18 musicians by Steve Reich. And we went to Juilliard where they were playing it. He was about six and he sat there for 76 minutes and, and didn't bat an eyelash, you know, and, and that's really funny because there's less of that. I think what you get into with that long haul stuff is now you're at the mercy of a, a younger audience that may not have the time or the patience for
1: Yeah, it depends. I mean, um, there's this young, really interesting composer in New York right now named Dylan Mattingly. Actually, he's from California, but he writes these, he's writing like a six hour long, very interesting, uh, minimalist, uh, microtonal opera. And he writes in, really long extended forms. And so I think I think it's there, you know, you just have to find the right pathway to follow.
0: I mean, I'm all for it. You have Kamasi Washington, you know, has young audiences listening to hour long suites. Yeah, you know, um, Miguel Atwood Ferguson, who's going to be on this program coming up uh, in a couple of weeks, okay. uh, will be, you know, uh, is one of those people that again is, is making the events, and I think that the event of Feldman is also tied in with what David's talking about, because uh-huh. it's not that I'm looking to see how you guys, because I know that you're going to be, you you wouldn't get into Feldman for 80 plus minutes unless you're in there for the long haul. And obviously, like, I'm curious about some something like this. How many times did you guys run
1: it? Um. I think we ran it once or twice. We mostly worked in sections, but also I had played the piece previously with another group, and they had played the piece previously, so we all kind of knew how it fitted together. Um, that that helped a lot because we had a very short amount of time to put it together. But those I figure. Guys were such amazing musicians, you know. And for a lot of the piece, the quartet works as a unit, and the piano works. It's, it's almost call and response. So right. in, that, in that sense, it's not difficult to put together. But the thing that's tricky, of course, is unifying all the sounds and the phrases and everything. But, um, you know, in terms of Feldman, that piece is not that long. <laughs> As we know. Yeah, so um, I, I, you know, if you've played a three and a half hour Feldman or a you know, four hour Feldman, the, that piece seems kind of Kind of like a little blip. (laughs) It's the single. (laughs) Yeah, but I think that for an audience member, even I mean, I love Feldman, but even for me, there's always this process I go through when I'm listening to his music. Where I sit down at first, and I'm really engaged, and I'm really in it, and then my, and then I start to like think, oh man, oh yeah, and I kind of get antsy, and then you kind of surrender. And when I finally get to the point of surrendering, like I'm going to be sitting here for a long time, then I really start to go inside the music because you, I don't know. It, I think it takes a kind of surrender to, to really listen to it, you know, for me I, anyway. I like
0: that. I think it does.
1: <laughs> surrender to Feldman. <laughs> you
0: know, also uh, it's, a, it's a meditative space for me with Feldman. I like that space very much as an alternative to minimalism. Mm-hmm. Because it's not, you know, what's funny about that is like, would some people throw him in with minimalism? I mean, I never would, but I don't throw John Adams in with minimalism. So, so it's kind of like Feldman was limiting materials. And I ask you this, Vicki Ray, what do you think his, his inspiration was knowing what we know about his, his life is he trying to represent an analog to tapestries?
1: Huh. Um, I definitely think that's part of it. I, I also think you know, he was so involved in the visual art movement that was happening at his time. So um, Rauschenberg, Rothko, certainly, um, and his, his buddies that he hung out with big time, like Cage, Earl Brown, uh, Christian Wolf. I think, I so I think it was a part of an aesthetic response to the visual world. Certainly, his involvement with rugs and tapestries, um, but also um, the influence of those other guys, you know, and their whole aesthetic. And um, but he definitely took it in his own way, his own direction. That's for sure. I I think in a way it's minimalist, but you know these terms are so silly in a way you know they're always
0: do you think that you get if you're having repetitions of five and more
1: that you're you're doing minimalism I mean what's the rule there <laughs> I don't think there is a rule I mean I think when when we first started using the word minimalism there was a lot of what they call pattern pulse music where it was much you know like um you know piano phase or something um, yeah. where it was much more Kind of pure minimalist music, but it's gone so many different directions, and um, I don't think the term is very useful anymore. Post minimalism, maximal <laughs> minimalism—you know, it's it's apples and oranges. I mean, John Adams is so different than Steve Reich, and to put them in the same thing is uh... no—they're not—they're not particularly interested in the same things, <laughs> you know. Uh, Vicki, what about Crippled Symmetry? Ah, Crippled Symmetry. Um, what about it? Well, <laughs> it's, a, it's a really confusing score for people if they've never played Feldman. In fact, a colleague of mine who doesn't play new music wrote me uh, from a school I shall not name and said, my kids, some of my students want to play this, but how do you play it? Because the parts don't line up. Yeah. It never occurred to him that the parts aren't supposed to line up that you know he wrote them in different time signatures and at one point the percussion and the flute get like seven pages ahead of the piano part but if you just trust the process eventually you catch up okay but here's an interesting question having done the feldman
0: uh graphic stuff with the open aspects ensemble which was a group i had here in new york with steve gosling and Neil, Neil Dufalo, and we were p- playing all these pieces—the uh, the Earl Brown stuff, um, uh, the Christian Wool stuff—and and I have to say, I was looking at these Feldman graphic scores and the lo- well, I, well, I'll call them the open aspects or the loose things, and uh, there aren't a lot of verbal instructions or performance instructions, or, or am I missing some of them? Because I, I I felt that it would be confusing and it was confusing, but we figured our ways out because we were all composers and we were kind of thinking, you know, we, we know how to, how to make this work with
1: the materials we're given, but do you find him vague in this regard? Absolutely, he leaves a lot of things uh, up in the air and I, I feel so indebted because, um, you know, I played in the California Ear Unit for years and they all knew Morty. And they all worked with him and so I, I feel like you know I was the recipient of their um, knowledge and they were able to help help me understand his music more but you know like on some of the really important works there's no indication of pedal for the piano and that's a huge debate with people or like of course symmetries, there's no instructions how the hell you're supposed to put it together and if I if I didn't know Art Jarvinin and Dorothy Stone, I, I wouldn't have known either, you know. So So what did they hip you to as inside info from Feldman himself? Well, I think one of the um one of the most interesting bits of information actually had to do with um his use of accidentals with string writing, because Erica Duke, who worked with him a lot and cooked him many breakfasts, um, told me that when Morty writes uh a D-flat, he intends it to be tuned very differently than a C-sharp. And if he writes like a string of C-sharp, D-flat, C-sharp, D-flat, he doesn't mean those to be the same pitches. And there's a whole lot of debate about this. Some string players just think he's being effete or something by doing that. But Eric, according to Erica, who got it from Morty, he wanted those tuned differently.
0: again like how would that ever survive two generations of performance practice i mean uh, which which
1: he didn't you know so i i think it's i think it's one of the things i love about him is that he he leaves and especially in those open scores like the ones you were doing man he leaves a lot of a lot yeah yeah like i love that kind of trusting your performer thing like as a composer i I'm really into that, like creating forms where I'm inviting my performers to be as much a part of the creative process. and Cause I loved it when composers did that for me, you know? And there was a bond that we felt with
0: goodwill that we would do that for, you know, Terry Riley's, you know, in C or, you know, any of these things where you're go- you're not gonna just, you know, jerk around. You're gonna, you know, you're really gonna go in there and try to do, the the right thing, but I have to ask you this, since I know who I'm talking to, how do you feel that that gets used and or abused in Cage World? Oh, taking taking liberties with the scores,
1: you mean? Or- well, are the scores nothing more than taking liberties? <laughs> it depends on the score. I mean, the guy yes. covers so much territory. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, with the, something like the songbooks, it's so is so open um, to your interpretation, or even with the prepared piano works, you know, he made these preparations and he was very specific to a degree, but then he says, these are the preparations for our Steinway, L, M or O. Well, what if you're playing it on a Yamaha? Or, you know, it, so there's, yeah, there's a certain amount of interpretation that goes on. And I think it's up to the integrity of each player to be as true as possible, to Cage's intentions. Um, I I, I have to say, I'm not super aware of any kind of charlatanism that goes on in Cage's name, but maybe it happens. Do you have some stories that way? Well, I can tell you something interesting,
0: uh, which I'm sorry if I said this before on the podcast, but when I was an undergraduate at Rutgers in the early 80s, we did a John Cage festival where Mr. Cage attended. Ah. And and also that he was around, so I would go to gigs at Roulette. I would go to gigs at Experimental Intermedia, and Mr. Cage would be sitting four chairs over. And you'd say, "Hi, Mr. Cage. Hey, guys. You know, he was really nice. He was he was he was there to hang. You know, but when we did his um, we did Fontana Mix, and we did a few other things. And I know that we did the uh, the 433, and um, and he was really pissed off that the audience made noises and sounds and that um, mm. that that we didn't sit there silently, which was just interesting for me because well a one he was so he had so, sort of sa- signed off on having control on it, but he wasn't happy with this result and two um. What did he prove to me that the nature of the piece was to try to achieve silence? It's, um, it, it's really hard. It was just like, we, we never, of course, we never questioned him about it, but it was a moment, you know?
1: Huh.
0: Hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, because uh, philosophically, he purported to that all sounds are, are equally part of the music, right, of course. Um, but then, Sounds like he was being selective about which noises he was happy about, and at that particular performance. Anyway, and I
0: would just say that this, you know, that he he's a human being, he wasn't the Buddha, uh, and that you know, maybe he does have an opinion about it, and maybe it evolved over time. I, you know, I it doesn't bother me. I just what I wanted to say was that's a moment in the trenches of your piece. Like I was alive when. Tr-
1: Cage was alive when that piece was being played. Wow, that's amazing Greg. You know? I would love I would have given anything to meet him I wish I could Oh, have.
0: it was weird. I would see him at Elliot Carter premieres <laughs> He just went to shows, you know, like he was out and about so It cool. was a quite remarkable thing because uh, like I say, you could talk to him. Yeah. And he would say, uh, well, I think Herb Deutsch told me that that he said it, so I'm not going to take credit for it. But but uh, when composers badmouth each other at concerts, apparently there was one case where Herb badmouthed a piece to Mr. Cage on the same program, and Mr. Cage said, "We don't say a piece is good or bad; we say it's interesting or not interesting."
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, absolutely. I mean. One of my favorite party tricks when I was younger was like asking people if they thought there was such a thing as bad music, because, you know, I don't think it's just music, you know, it's not cancer research, you know, I I think it's all, it's all just music. I mean, you might have your opinion. It's just an opinion, you know, but it doesn't make the music bad. But anyway, I had some really colorful arguments with people about that when I was young and headstrong. (laughs)
0: <laughs> well then you know it's interesting to think about look you've been promoting music for 30 40 years I've been doing the same thing trying to get you know audiences to deal with this thing we've become educators in an, an attempt to uh, build a, a micro audience <laughs> just from our our leavings and uh, and I <laughs> Honestly, you know, I believe in it and I do it every day, but it is interesting because, you know, you've got Morton Feldman, but then you also have guys like Mel Powell. Mel. Who yes. is a Pulitzer Prize winning composer. People may know the story that he was in Benny Goodman's band, but, you know, he studied the, uh, the post Schoenberg way at, at Yale at, with Hindemith and really left jazz behind because he felt he had done with it what he could do with it yeah and uh such a fascinating composer but not not as well known as feldman and i i'd always hope that guys like mel and maybe you're aware of of some areas where there's sort of a a keen interest in in his uh contemporary music writing
1: well you mean these days nowadays i i feel like is 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 largely overlooked right now. Um, in fact, when you brought him up the other day, it just, it got me to thinking about him and and just the elegance of his atonal music. It was, it was so like Mel, it was incredibly elegant and colorful and sort of rhetorical, like the way he would talk. Mm. <laughs> um, but I don't, I can't say I have heard a single performance of his work in many, many years and it makes me sad. It makes me wanna make it happen. <laughs> But he the, he was a great inspiration to me in, so, in certain ways because <clears throat> I grew up playing pop music and and some jazz and uh, and and the fact that he came from that background and then and then also had a major career as a classical composer it made I always felt like kind of a mongrel <laughs> pianist you know and he just sort of was an inspiration because he did both and he did both really really well and uh, it's possible you know I, the classical music world can be so limiting, you know. They just want you to do, they want to put you in a little box, you know. And I, I never felt comfortable with that. So um, being around people like Mel um, made it seem possible, you know. He was such a sweet guy, so, so brilliant. He also had the biggest hands I've ever seen in my life. I mean, they were like baseball mitts. They were wow. so- <laughs> But he, um, you know, as you know, he taught for years at Cal Arts, And when I first started, um, he was already pretty, um, the muscular dystrophy was pretty advanced. But I just remember this one conversation, and I was eating my little lunch in the cafeteria, and he wheeled up and he just, you know, started telling me stories. And he was telling me the two stories that stick in my mind were he was telling me one story about playing for Billie Holiday. They had played this gig and they wanted to go out afterwards and have some food and the restaurant they went into wouldn't let her in because she was black and mel mel started crying when he told me this story he was it was still so upsetting to him you know that's how sweet and gentle he was wow the other story that really kind of rocked me was i don't know how we got we got to talking about when the ms first um started to manifest. And he said, he said, there was one day, I guess he used to get up and play Bach in the morning. And he said, I was playing Bach. And all of a sudden, I noticed that my left hand trills were faster than my right hand trills. And he said, that's never been the case. Because if you're right handed, you always trill better with your right hand. And he said, I knew something was wrong. Mm. It just, yeah, it gave me, gave me the chills. But he he just was a great colleague throughout, and it was a, it was a joy to play his music. You know, he was one of the spiritual godfathers of the Ear Unit. So, we did a CD of his work, and and uh, had one of his paintings on the cover, which was great. You must know Amy Knowles, right? I do. Yeah, in fact. You know, I love CalArts
0: and I've had such a great welcome feeling when I've been there. I've been there in residence a few times. Uh, David Johnson brought me in, Vinnie Golia has brought me in. Cool. Um, you know, I, I, I did uh, interview Anne LeBaron there when, when we were doing her oral history. And, um, you know, uh, David Johnson. I I miss him so bad and, and I feel so terrible that you know he got to retirement and, and passed so quickly and he was such a force. Yeah. And he he brought me in to premiere my Marimba quartet, Sequoia. Oh wow. And and they worked their asses off on it and did it. And Dave, when I came in, Dave had them, you know, playing it.
1: That's awesome
0: you know, and I tweaked a few things, but I mean, of course, working with him, we played duo improvisations, which I have recordings of from that evening. And Amy, Amy Knowles was there. G.E. Stinson was there. Doug Lunn was there. It was a beautiful, beautiful night.
1: That's lovely.
0: When would that have been, Greg? It was like, oh, eight, something like that. Okay. And, um, and you no, know, that was one of several times. I was Wadada had me there for, for one of his uh, masterclass things. And, uh, you know, I'm interested in, you know, you're someone that reaches so many different areas of this. So you're you're really a practitioner of what I call the completely open musician. But really, how do we do that? We don't apply the same rules and situations to everything. Each thing is its own universe with its own set of principles and its own set of, of uh, sonic material, however you want to think of it. So what do you feel is connective or, or divisive between approaching a piece by Wadada, Leo Smith, and approaching a piece by John Cage?
1: Well, I mean, I. this may sound just really obvious, but I think for me, um, it's just whatever musical project you're involved in is to, to play with the absolute integrity, the, your deepest integrity and your deepest commitment to the composer and to the form and to the aesthetic. Um, and if you can't do that, then maybe you shouldn't be playing it. But um, they, at the core of each one of those composers or Boulez or um, John Adams, or like you say, Wadada, who was a huge influence on me, um, I think what they're asking you to do is, is find that point in your creative imagination and soul that responds clearly and directly to the music and then channel that so that so that the, the spirit of the piece comes out and, and, and grabs the audience, you know? Um, so I, I don't feel like I switch gears necessarily. Um, there might be slightly different finger techniques um, or different parts of my musical personality I bring to the fore, but I still feel integrated as, as a creator when I approach any of those guys um, or girls. <laughs> I guess I mean vocabulary.
0: For instance, if you have open material and you're led to have your druthers in a given piece by Wadada, or the same thing of a vague verbal instruction from Mr. Cage, you know what what kicks in there? Is there a, a, an accepted vocabulary?
1: I, wow. I have to think about that, Greg. I mean, I guess, yeah, with each composer, there's a certain accepted vocabulary, like, if I were playing a piece of Wadada's, and there was uh, an open uh, section, I probably wouldn't, like, interpolate a bunch of Mozart. I just don't feel like Mozart fits well with Wadada, although, you know, I don't know, maybe he'd be into it. But I just, stylistically, I guess I wouldn't go there. Um, So, I guess part of it is just your intuitive sensing of each composer and what they were going after, but they're also leaving a lot of it up to you. So it's trust trusting your own in, instincts, you know. And I think in
0: in speaking for myself, I would just say I, you would know the kind of oeuvre of that guy, you know, or that person, and you would you would know sort of what's been the sound world of that person. I would hope, but you know, it's it's a I think it's an interesting question of. Uh, you know how much trust is involved, but also what could go into the score to make it a little bit clearer. And it could be a paragraph. And I've attempted this in a number of situations. You know, because you kind of what are we doing with this as composers? We're manipulating levels of control and and levels of maybe randomness or levels of um, Uh, generalized activity so some control so different levels of control and I I always say like so what's the core message there as a composer what would that be for you
1: right yeah I think your your point is right on about like immersing yourself in in the in the works of that composer I mean with anybody with any composer like I didn't for years I just didn't get Schubert like I just didn't get it but I hadn't listened to that much. So it wasn't until my thirties when I had the little aha moment, you know? And there's some composers I still don't get. <laughs> but, um, but even, so you immerse yourself in that sort of goes into your intuitive understanding of the composer, even if you can't verbalize it. But I think it's sort of like, you know, being multilingual. You know, you can speak all these languages. You might be saying the same thing, but you're able to say it in a lot of different languages. So it's just getting deeper with each language so that you can express things more subtly. That makes sense? That I makes mean, that's fair. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, and of course,
0: I guess I wonder about, you know, the, the future generations that aren't people that have been able to work with Braxton or, or Leo Smith or George Lewis. You know, I'm just thinking, um, I guess part of it has been oral history. You know, we've been trying to talk to these guys and, you know, find out about methods and, get it on the record. I think m- many composers want to speak about that. You but, know, sorry. Well, like Mr. Threadgill, you know, for instance, and those guys are, uh, are around and, and they should be, they should be heard and, and they should be queried uh, so that a much larger picture can be formed about the approach to their music because our, our people are going to be playing it a, a ways from now. So, you know, that's a concern. And I look at my own scores and I look at people's scores and I'm always kind of looking, you know, just even since the Norton anthology of scores, you know, how do you communicate what you are trying to get happen here and not have a disaster?
1: <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And I mean, you and I came from a time where if we wanted to get into that information, like when we were in our 20s or early 30s, it, there wasn't any internet. Right. But now it's incredible the kind of information you can find in, you know, just watching great composers talk about their work. So I wonder if in a way it's made composers lazier because they know, oh, you can just find 10 performances that online and figure it out yourself. You know,
0: although what makes me nuts, though, this is this is a very strange analogy, but I teach an arranging course for songwriters and none of them have ever thought about creating a bass part. You know, really? yeah, like they never thought about oh I'll just let the bass player they they've only thought i I'll, I'll let the bass player do the bass player thing. They'll huh. give him a lead sheet or whatever. Huh. And huh. it's it, I can't help thinking that's a that's just a funny little bridge there. Yeah, like you know, you're not you're not dealing with what you're not dealing with.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I'm still a very fledgling composer. And one of the mistakes I tend to make is just assuming that people know what, how I want it to sound. You know, I'm finding more and more, you really, really have to put down every damn diacritical mark you can think of. If you really, you know, you can't assume anything just because the vision is so clear in your own head. doesn't mean it comes off the paper that way. So I've learned my lesson the hard way a few times that. (laughs) And that's the best way to learn it um and i certainly had that as
0: well uh you know these things are sort of tested on the, on the playing field so i think that's my i'm get, sort of getting out of like this you play a wide variety of things and i'm involved with a wide variety of things and you sort of look at different performance practices and you kind of you know it's like i'm not going to play the same way with jan Hammer that i would play with todd Rundgren, <laughs> or or you know or with cecil taylor and so that's why I say vocabulary is so interesting. And in the case of Cecil's music, I made a point of studying with two of his drummers, Andrew Cyril and Steve McCall in high school, mm-hmm. so that I you know, could sort of work towards that gig. So it was very much about, what are you guys doing? Like, what is this thing that you guys are doing? And please tell me, you know, master of the universe. You know? It's like, that, that's an unbelievable experience. Eight. So that when you get to play with someone like Cecil and it's completely open, but it's not completely open right. because you're listening to him and he's feeding the material in real time. And that was an interesting in rehearsal thing where it was, I, I'd listened to his music for 10 years, maybe less eight and then was on the gig and it only dawned on me at that time that he's just defining sections. And huh. if you follow his defining of the material in sections, you'll hear the sections. And yeah. then that, and, and like, so, you know, were guys playing through them before? I w- My thing was I wanna demarcate his sections. Oh, yeah. I wanna really, really, really respond to him you on can hear, sections. You can
1: hear the structure in what he does, right? Well, that's the thing. And so
0: my whole point was, you know, there's a structure to what he's doing, folks. If I can help support that to give clarity to his music, then it's
1: a win for everybody. Well, it's interesting you bring up Cecil Taylor, because um, I actually had a question for you about Cecil Taylor. <laughs> and sure. I wrote your buddy, uh, Alex Klein, a few months ago. Because um, I, I have a transcription of a Cecil Taylor solo, and I've been learning it. Um, and I, I've been I've been working on a project about um, imp, called frozen improvisations. Um, it's based on this thing Stravinsky said that composition is frozen improvisation. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking at different ways improvisations can be frozen. And um, and I happen to have this t- transcription of Life as the Cecil Taylor piano solo. And so I've been I've been learning it, which is amazing to see his structure, first of all, and to see like how many um, pitch sets he repeats you know I didn't expect to see that much repetition and that much structure at all so it's been super cool to get inside his his brain that way um my question to you is and maybe this is a kind of a hot button topic, but do you think that it's cultural appropriation to play a Cecil Taylor solo do you think that there's well that's it mostly I, I can answer that with one question.
0: <laughs> Do you think it's a cultural appropriation issue if Cecil has black guys and white guys in his band? No. So, you know, this is the thing that, that comes from um, sort of the white perspective, but, but generally speaking, uh, my experience with, with African-American artists, my entire life has been that they are the most welcoming and the most open and the least racist of all the people I've known in my life. So, I, you know, Miles in his autobiography said, the best bands are mixed bands. Tony Oxley preceded me in Cecil Taylor unit and, and I so was, you know, a mixed band there for a minute and people had, white people, white critics had a problem with Cecil having white drummers. Yeah. You know, so it's it was it was really weird. Alex and I spoke about this issue at length, with him, him being at Julius Hemphill's various ensembles and and all of those gentlemen. So you know, um, Vicky, you know that's that's any way you're supporting the music, any way that you are pointing out something interesting about the music, it's think of it as an arrangement if it's if it's not if it's if you think it's a direct you know, that you're directly channeling Cecil through it i mean i would think i can tell you a number of things uh, have you ever seen his handwritten scores no oh exactly. they're just pitch names they're groupings of pitch names huh. so it's sort of like he does exactly what you're saying but you see them on the page cool. but they're just but they're not register specific uh huh They're they're pitch classes, they're pitch groupings, but they're not rhythmic. They're just maybe sometimes higher or lower in in position on the page. And then William Parker would go over and he'd get the pitch groupings and and we'd try to stay on sections. And and the short pieces that, that made up that record, Inflorescence, bear this out because you can hear the form on these 14 pieces. And that was our well. The fourteenth one is us improvising, actually, and we still did it. You know, we still, we were still winging it, but we were still setting up sections and listening. And and I felt like um, Cecil didn't ever say to me, "Play more like Andrew or play more like Sonny Murray." He he liked that I was bringing a contemporary classical element to it because he was. See, this is the kind of thing that I, I should talk about more. But he was a huge fan of Zanakis and Carter and um, Bartok and Stravinsky, and he knew all that shit cold. So I would say to him, Cecil, what's your favorite Stravinsky? He said, "Agon." Wow. Agon. I was like, okay, cool. That makes a lot of sense. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't one of the greatest hits, <laughs> sure. you know, or or the time he came in to a uh, hang after like, I was playing with Bratzman or, or somebody maybe and Cecil came to a, after hang and he walked into the room and everyone said oh it's Cecil's here Cecil's here and he walks in and the first thing he says is Bendian have you heard the new Carter piano concerto <laughs> wow you know and everybody just kind of was didn't know you know what he was talking about and they went back to talking and then he came over and we talked about Carter. So I know like that Cecil was into Zanakis because he did concerts with Roger Woodward. Oh, he did? Oh yeah. So, so there was, there was a thing where they'd alternate, but it was a tour or several tours. First half Cecil, second half Zanakis with Roger or, you know, flip it. Wow. And they did that and they, they admired each other and and Xenakis, uh and Cecil
1: can you imagine an, an evening of that no but it makes me want to go up and play this transcription for roger because he's up in san francisco is he now oh that's great yeah. yeah wow that's amazing to hear that and i would i would love to look at one of his handwritten scores can you find some online do you know i have
0: some i mean i i, I have to f- dig stuff out i also have his handwritten poetry we, w- we would recite poetry wow. and it was all uh you know aztec and mayan Mythology, you know, Egyptian mythology that he had deep dived on. Um, yeah, it, it was it was a universe. Well,
1: the, the reason I asked Alex, and Alex said you got to talk to Greg Bendian about this, <laughs> was just that you know I'm approaching it from a place of deep reverence, and I'm I'm doing it as a study, as a way to deepen my understanding of of his playing. And the so notes that- are cool, right? You're amazing. Yeah. That's the music though. That's because he put those notes together like that. That's going to come through. Yeah. So I just, I just want to make sure I'm being as woke and sensitive about this as possible. So it's, it's really helpful to hear your, your thoughts on it. He wouldn't be opposed to it. He'd be fascinated by
0: it. He might have a thing or two to say about it, but you know, he would, he would appreciate that. Oh, I want to tell you one other thing. So, so such did his appreciation exist that when the, the Kronos were were uh, begging him for a piece and giving him money for a piece, he sent them one of those note name scores. So it- so um, uh, John, I, I'm trying to, who's the, the main guy in Kronos? He would have the score um, um, and then- David Harrington. David, uh, I'm saying John Harrington, the guitarist, and Steely Dan. No. So I know that I went to the, pre- the premiere of it, and it sounded like his piano solo music. Oh, wow. So that's heavy, too. Like, did they ever really record it? Did they have a, a, a tape of them doing it? Uh, because they, they, they those triadic things were in it, the mm-hmm. sort of contrary motion triadic things were in it. <laughs>
1: But what's incredible to me is like looking at it on the page, all transcribed, and then listening to him play it is just how fucking clean his technique is. I mean, his fingers are like machines, so fast and so clean, you know, he just, he didn't lean on the pedal hardly at all.
0: No, I'll tell you another thing that you'll find of interest. In rehearsal, very interesting. He would do one of those chromatic runs that you think is a throwaway but he'd repeat it 17 times (laughs) so you'd be playing whatever and then like you're oh oh he's practicing that lick (laughs) you know or he's really exploring that lick and very exacting wow that's so that's why i always felt like oh you know yeah like uh free jazz drummers with cecil not the not the garden variety for that music. He's too exacting. You gotta be a little clean, you gotta be a little bit thinking about articulation, like how loud are you? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what where can you go in that music that hasn't gone before? And he never said anything to me like, don't do that. Oh, really? Ever. He cool. one time said to me in in Victoriaville, he said maybe on this stage, don't play so loud. It's, it's really live at one time. Every, the only other time was compliments. He would say things like, you took care of everything tonight, Bendian. Oh, wow. You know, Because he could hear that I was trying to, to do something and he
1: was cool with it. Wow. So Greg Bendian, I have a question, another question for you, which is when is someone gonna do your oral history? <laughs> that needs to happen. Yeah, well,
0: I'm still doing the history of it. <laughs> I'm still doing history. I, you know, I, I talk about some stuff, but I do it to, with my students. I tell them stories. I think you have to, you know, um, because you're passing down information. You know how it is. Yeah, but it would be a shame if that were lost. No, no, it won't be lost. It'll be done. I mean, obviously... Um, my different hybrid thing and all my choices are, are really weird. And, I, and I've been told that not, not a lot of people may, would have made those same choices. Like Gary Husband said to me, Cecil Taylor and Todd Rundgren.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. Like we're, we're mongrels, you know? But and, and that's, the, see, but isn't that the fun of it, Vicky Ray? Absolutely. Absolutely, but also it took me a while to get comfortable being a mongrel. Like when I was younger, I I I wasn't comfortable with it, but now I appreciate it because I've gotten to do all these different things instead of just playing Bach and Beethoven. You know, I couldn't I couldn't be that person. You know, but I tried for a little while. And
0: you know what's interesting is is I can I I was I wanted to verbalize this to you today. I was thinking about it. The point of departure came for me. When we're doing like Bach transcriptions for marimba, and I'm like, this isn't the music of my time. Uh. and I'd heard the music of my time in prog rock and in you know the non such uh, the non such contemporary music stuff that was being released in the '70s. That was all available to us in Teaneck. and and I already knew that what the music of my time sounded like was guys like you know Cecil Taylor and Charles Warren and. We're all doing it, you know, this thing. It was an explosion, as you recall, of many different options. I thought I'll try. I want I'm sincerely interested in all these different approaches. Like I love my pop guys. I I, you know, I wish I could go out on the road and and, you know, do a, a a pop gig for six months and not have to think that much and just enjoy playing. But really? it's always been it's like, you know. I'd rather try to get a number of weird things going that will really challenge me and excite me because I've been reading so much about this stuff and I'm immersed in it and now I wanna to try to put it into practice and you know, all the different, the genre stuff for me is vocabulary, but it's also like a culture of that music, right? So you're like, what were those guys like? What were they talking about? You know, If you're working with them, try to ask them questions. But it's so funny because my oral history thing kicks in with guys like Todd. And he's like, You're not, don't do it. Don't do it again. Because <laughs> I just keep, I'll, I'll pepper him with questions. And I had to make the transition to just being, you know, his drummer. But it's funny because uh, I have so many questions for a guy like that because he made so many key decisions in early electronica. You know he doesn't really remember what keyboards they were
1: even though you're dying to know like what were those keyboards yeah man. so well it it's interesting the thing about the music of your time because I, I wish more people thought about that like i i remember being really blown away um for like 10 years i did uh i did the bang on a can summer festival at mass mocha and um like the music that we played there for three weeks every summer, it was really pretty aggressive music and it was music that was being created right in the moment by young composers from all over the world. It was very driving rock-based music, uh, pretty, pretty challenging, pretty in-your-face music. And there was this one uh, couple, they're in their eighties, they came to every concert and I got to know them. They're brilliant people um, and I just one day, you know, over martinis or something, I said, "So, what is it about this music that that you guys are so attracted to?" And they said, "It's the music of our time. It's the music that reflects the world we're living in. We need music that's going to help us understand this world." And they said, "Mozart is beautiful and we love Mozart, but he doesn't help us understand this this time." And I just thought I just thought that was so fantastic, you know, and so realized um not and we were
0: lucky, too, because if you're exposed to any of the guys who were making the music of our time, then it, you're imbued with this spirit. And I always feel like I'm continuing the spirit in my own
1: weird way of the artist that I was attracted to in the 70s. Sure. It's like an apprenticeship, like you're handing down the wisdom, right? And it's important, especially as being an educator, to feel that you can share that, you know. Also, I mean, you had a you have a son, uh, but I skipped the kid thing. And so, like when I get to share things like this with my students, I feel like I'm sharing the very best part of myself, and that it's continuing my life's work through them. And that's that's really meaningful. I I never thought I would be a teacher, to be honest. Um, but it's my thirtieth year at Cal Arts, and, and wow. I would not be half the player I am today if it hadn't if I hadn't been a teacher. They they taught me so much. Sure. well you're you're constantly giving and taking in that situation
0: you're receiving uh, it's it is remarkable uh,
1: to also remember yourself at that age for sure although I, I think these kids are way hipper than I was I mean I grew up in a small I grew up in Montana you know oh I didn't <laughs> know that <laughs> Scott and I are from Montana um, and you know we we got some okay musical training but when i you know came to la i was really green man <laughs> I, I think my eyes were this big i had a lot of learning and listening to do um, so i think these kids at CalArts are a little more hip other than that a little more caught up but um, it's also because the kind of students we attract at CalArts are so they're not the usual music majors you know they they want to improvise and compose and do electronics and play Brahms, you know, and do that. Why bat- shouldn't they? Absolutely. And, you know, the more well-rounded you are as a musician these days, the more chances are that you're going to be able to pay the rent, too. I've been preaching that for more than
0: 20 years because uh, we started to realize, I'm sure it was more than 20 years, i am I'm probably screwing up the date more than 20 years ago i think we started having conversations about are we training them for disappointment uh-huh. or can we make uh, options available and enjoy the joy of making music and the the excellence of it and taking it seriously and and being able to fit into a number of situations
1: Yes, yeah, so important and 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 The thing that I, one of the things I didn't anticipate is by addressing those issues, how much it made me grow, you know, constantly challenging me. Like a couple hours from now, after we sign off, I'm teaching a winter session class on protest music, um, which feels incredibly important right now. But it, it, it forced me to learn a lot more about protest music. And it's really great for me to go outside of, you know, one of my comfort zones. So, and I get paid to do that. I feel so lucky, you know. So. No,
0: it's incredibly lucky. It's incredibly, but you know, the, the thing for me is never check out, you know, always, always give it, you know, the respect and, and the, you know, the excitement that it, it requires to, to but it's, it's easy. It's, I don't think of it as work. But you wow. know, I wanted to tell you, you mentioned protest music. I did Carla Blaze oral history as my very first interview uh, um, uh, 10 years ago. And uh, uh, we talked about the Liberation uh, Music Orchestra that she
1: had. Yeah, she's gonna um, give a talk at CalArts next week for our, yeah, a live stream for us, so I can't wait. So
0: ask hear. her about that because that that's
1: an important project. I okay, will for sure. But you know, this, this all sort of goes back to something that um, you and I were talking about before we started taping, which was um, which is the amazing force in this world named Peter Sellers, and Peter Peter is the person who really um, you know turned my m- blew my mind open about music being a force for change. Like I guess I knew it on some level, but it wasn't until I worked with Peter that I understood how powerful it can be. And he's to this day he's like one of the most important figures um, in my life um, because of the way he the way he thinks you know he's a revolutionary he's he's such a beautiful revolutionary <laughs> for years I, I, I first met him doing an, a Ligeti opera in Salzburg and um, for years afterwards he would show up in my dreams as this sort of litmus test he was like a touchstone. Like if I were in a situation that needed some kind of resolution or artistic decision, Peter would show up as like this litmus test. It was incredible. So that's kind of where he stands in my life. So doing a class in protest music probably wouldn't have happened if I'd never met Peter Sellers. (laughs) Right, because he's teaching at UCLA uh, ethics
0: and morals in art. Better. Yeah. Oh boy. Well, I mean, it's, a, it's just a dream. Also watching him work. I've been really fortunate because uh, I got to see him work on the Kaya ghosts, Japanese ghost, mm-hmm. no drama thing. Wow. It was so riveting. It was so disturbing. They basically did light and shadow and sound design. And we, Oh, I could go on and on about this event. No, I. It it was. It was a. We only could get into the dress rehearsal, but it was a blizzard. And I knew I couldn't miss it, and I drove like twenty miles an hour into Manhattan from New Jersey. Got a parking garage, I guess somehow, and ran in with my friend Jill Stasium, the painter, and we got into this dress rehearsal and there was like 20 people just that had been invited. So it was even more just so kind of intense. Mm -hmm. And he's there and he's working, you know, and he's talking to to Maestra and, and it was just like watching all the guts of it, you know, and then one false start and then the whole thing went from start to finish. And it was unbelievable what he had come up with and when I talked to him he said shadows are their most primal thing aren't they?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah that's very Indian. <laughs> but the thing also about the way he directs is there there's no razzle dazzle there's there's nothing that gets done just for the the pure You know uh, shock value of it every single motion every single decision is deeply thought out and considered and coming from a source of of trying to enlighten the audience and it's incredible to see someone work on that level and the way he interacts with the singers and the things he gets them to do like that uh, you know (laughs) i'll never forget in the ligety like you hear these singers they're singing some of the most difficult music ever written from memory and Peter has them, you know, rolling on the floor and doing all kinds of stuff. But he he's such an amazing human being that when he, when he explains it, you go, oh sure. Yeah, for Peter, yeah, absolutely. Now I get it, you know. Can
0: I tell you one? You yeah. Hopefully you saw the the concert. Uh, it was the master singers um, doing the- um... Lacramelle. Yes, okay. So I'm at the dress rehearsal for that. And he's coaching them, of course, on the meaning of the Italian word and the facial expression and hand motions they're supposed to do. And he said to them, you have to imagine Peter doing this, he says, and don't give me these junior year high school drama club sad faces. Because if you do that one more time, I'll take a fistful of ham and a fistful of Percocet and I'll end it all.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good one. And I,
0: they, went, they went berserk. And of course it was the perfect thing to, to, to deliver that information. And like, so, so you learn. You're just like I am. Just the student here. Let me let me see you interact with collaborators, sir, because
1: I do that sometimes. And you know, yeah, yeah. He he's uh, there's there's no words for him. He's amazing. But I'm so glad that that we have this this thing in common. Oh, I'm I'm hoping that that he'll come on the program and we can talk about
0: music because I have some some more questions for him.
1: Um, oh, you just know that Alex is doing his oral history for UCLA, right? Yeah. Yeah. Can't wait to hear that too.
0: That's good. He's got he's right there, in, you know, in Culver City. Um, you know, another really interesting composer that you've been involved with is
1: Harry Parch. Kind of recently. Um I joined the Parch Ensemble. Well, I had an earlier stint with them um a few like 10 years ago, but I joined more full time about three or four years ago, I played the Chromalodeon. And uh, yeah, I mean. Now what? you've been involved in, in microtonal music in other settings. Yeah, I have this duo, um, Ray Kelley duo with Aaron Kelly, who does all kinds of amazing commissioning and performing of microtonal music for keyboards. But we have a duo that also does it where we mostly use keyboards where we can change the tunings really easily because pianos aren't very useful that way. So I've been, you know, starting to tiptoe into that world with Aaron um, and then um, John Schneider and the Parch folks asked me to join the chromalodian uh, as the Chromelodianist when DJ, when David Johnson died, because that was his position for years. And so that those were big shoes to fill. Um, but it's been great for my ears. Yeah. Um, you know, you don't think you can necessarily hear the difference in a 43 tone scale, but after you do it for a while. you It's amazing how much your ears can stretch. So I'm having a blast with that. I mean, the instrument itself is so quirky and funky and weird, but I love it. It's its actually right here in my house right now because I'm learning some new stuff on it. But oh, you have it in your house, that's great. Yeah. In fact, while we're talking right now, there's a composer out there working on it because he got commissioned to write a piece for us. Oh, good. So, so music is being uh, com- commissioned for the Parch Instruments. Yeah. Um, one of our, our real great directives and new goals is to commission new works for the band. So um, this June, we'll be doing a concert at Red Cat, maybe live, but at least streamed. And it'll have six new pieces that have been written. Also, your friend Anne LeBaron that you um, interviewed, she's been writing an a opera on LSD, you know, on the history of LSD. And part of the band is the the Parch Ensemble, so pretty fun. Yeah, that 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 music sounds a little bit like it was written on LSD, even if it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, the first time I went to a Parch concert, I thought, "This is chamber music on Mars." Well, you know? you know, the tyranny of
0: the tempered scale has has screwed up a lot of us. But the idea of well, who decided? Who decides? And you know. Why is there a gold standard? I mean, it's interesting. It's true. I know Stravinsky bragged about being able to hear
1: microtonally. Well, and it's such a Western cultural problem. Like all these other cultures have incredible microtonal music that people just hear because they grew up hearing it. You know, so we need to we need to catch up. But I I guess the thing that I was surprised about with Harry's music was just how really elegant it is. You know, it's it's takes great. Um, precision to really pull that music off especially for the singers they have to you know match pitches with us when we're playing microtonally really it's hard really hard. well the Lee Poe songs you know those are hard yeah and the wayward and you know a lot of it but the thing you know and I want to say this to your listeners but the thing about the parch Ensemble is um, we we're still trying to accumulate all the instruments so more well, we, we've been building replicas. The, the actual instruments live up in Seattle. And so- uh, we Now, were they at one point in New Jersey with Dean? Yeah. yeah. And then when Dean died, they went to University of Washington um, with, uh, oh, I can't remember his name, Charles, Charles something, who's been the caretaker of them. But I've heard they might be leaving Washington, so I'm not sure where they're gonna go. But we're trying to raise money to build the last few that we don't have so we can do things like some of his later works. So if anyone, you know, has a cool 10 grand that they're like to drop, you know, please get in touch with the Parch ensemble in LA.
0: It's a worthy cause I will say I, I've been fascinated by his music since high school. Also fascinated by the character. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. He always seemed to me like a beef heart of the classical music. Yeah. I can see that
1: you had a piano you, you did not have an easy life that's no for sure. yeah so what are you working on these days um so this frozen improvisation project i told you about i'm getting so what ready else is on that so there's some classical pieces because i think it's so weird or or puzzling when a classical composer calls a piece improvisation so the whole idea for the concert came about because of the Bartók improvisations, which I love and I've always wanted the excuse to learn. So there's Bartók, there's Poulenc, there's Schnittke, a really cool piece, and uh, Coggle, Maurizio Coggle. Those are like the classical avant-garde pieces. And then uh, a piece of Wadada's because I think his, his scores are partially frozen, (laughs) slushy. And then uh, maybe this transcription by Cecil Taylor. And uh, I'm hoping to commission a piece from um, Pamela Z, but uh, waiting to hear about that. So um, the thing that's been kind of amazing about COVID, even though it sucks in so many ways, is to have time to learn these pieces really slowly, to memorize, which I haven't done in years. Um, Yeah, to just have, have time for it to age and mature and seep into me, which I don't, do usually have that luxury you know it's interesting isn't it because because it sense of time has changed
0: sense of resource of time and energy and, and organizing it's just completely different because it's also centralized now absolutely
1: yeah it's going to be weird to go back when we do i think it'll be very interesting to to watch all of our stress levels <laughs> But uh, I've also been working, I got a commission to write a piece for the LA Percussion Quartet for, for them and me together. So I've been working on a, a piece um, based on the Zen um, saying about first there's a mountain, then there is no mountain, then there is a mountain. So I've been writing a three-part three piece based on that. Um, and again, nice to have time, you know, kind of sucks not to be able to workshop it with the guys, but it's incredible to think, you know,
0: Will you try to workshop uh, by Zoom?
1: No, because part of it, they have to play inside the piano and I need to try things out with them. But um, it'll happen eventually, you know. So that and, um, yeah. I really miss doing improv projects with my brother. He usually comes to LA a couple times a year and um, he's my, my favorite improv buddy. It'd be super cool to play with you sometime. The three of us. I'd be into that. That would be great. Let us know when you're going to be in LA and maybe, you know, things could work out. That would be really awesome.
0: I think we should figure that out because I, I am looking toward trying to get back as soon as possible, as soon as it looks, you know, smart and feasible well, uh, to, to get a few things done. Yeah. So obviously, okay. that would be great to play with Scott. He's awesome
1: he usually i mean in normal years he would usually be down here like fall like you know mid-october and then usually get in the spring sometime so but yeah let's just stay in touch about that yeah would um, be a blast um but yeah i think i have to go prep for my class now i think you should i think your, your students are lucky to have you vicki ray well, likewise, likewise. It's so cool to get to hang out for a bit and, and not just say hi, bye after a concert.
0: Yeah, this is so cool. I, we share so many of the same interests and and sort of ethos is... <laughs> <laughs> um, so, listen, everybody, thank you for for checking us out. Uh, this has been the broadcast. My guest has been the wonderful Vicki Ray. And uh, look at vickiray.net. That's dot net, And we will have lots more of this coming uh, your way on the podcast. And uh, please like and subscribe. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye. Thanks, Greg.